This is The Black Box. Emergency response executive Ken Jenkins draws from his years of experience in deployment, logistics, planning, and after-action analysis to take you inside The Black Box. Now, here's Ken Jenkins. Welcome to The Black Box. I'm your host, Ken Jenkins. Today, my guest in the studio is Krista Hinckley with Hinckley Law. Krista has over 25 years of legal and management experience in the aviation industry and is the former managing director of risk for American Airlines. Krista has responded to many fatality aviation accidents from the crash of American Eagle Flight 4184 in 1994 to the terror events of 9-11. Krista, thank you for joining us on the Black Box today. My pleasure to be here. You know, as you know, and Chris and I have worked together uh, at American Airlines as, as the managing director of risk. She oversaw uh, many of our responses at American Airlines. And you know, in the aftermath of a disaster, especially one involving an organization such as an airline or other business entity, that the organization mobilizes many departments to respond. Volunteer responders, corporate communications, legal, risk, and many others. What role does risk management play for the organization in the aftermath of a disaster? Well, it depends on how the risk manager's role is defined. But typically, uh, I would say that in my, my case, in my role, uh, I had two functions. For a while, as you know, the care team reported to me, which is a separate discussion in terms of family assistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so I had that responsibility. But then getting to more traditional risk management roles, uh, the risk manager's responsibility, I think, is to help the organization respond, to coordinate, be a support for the frontline emergency responders, to help coordinate that response, to provide guidance as to what may be an appropriate thing to do in the event of an emergency and what may not. Uh, For example, many things uh, are insured and covered by insurance. Some are not, and the risk manager should be there to kind of provide that guidance as to what the company is going to recover in an insurance claim and what it's going to be exposed to that is an uninsured loss. So it's a many-faceted role, and so it's supporting family assistance. It's supporting the emergency responders and the investigation team because many times the investigative costs um, are also covered by insurance but are clearly critical to figuring out what happened. It's supporting the legal department who is usually involved as well in determining um, the appropriate legal responses to certain issues. So there's a variety of roles that can be played in addition to coordinating with the insurance companies who need to know what's going on uh, and be prepared to support the company that is their client and outside vendors who are also being retained and hired to help the company respond and ultimately will be paid either by the insurance company or by the the company that's responding. So we're looking at all those various departments that I mentioned in the introduction and risk management has a role in that guidance to all of those departments. Correct. And I think that's a real sort of overview on what risk management can do. It can touch all of those departments in terms of what their responsibilities are and try to coordinate and have an integrated response throughout the company. It has the advantage of being able to kind of poke its nose into those various departments because it's an, it's going to be involved and has a role to play with respect to each department's response. So Krista, I, I understand how risk management interfaces with the various stakeholders in an organization, whether it be legal or corporate communications and, and other Uh, outside agencies, for example. But let's take this specifically to the role of risk management uh, 
with regards to family assistance, whether it be aviation or uh, power industry. Sometimes those impacted by the disaster may look at the organization, particularly to legal and risk, as folks that are going to do their best to defend the organization. And there could be a conflict between that organization and risk. How do you, how does one balance that? How does an organization balance the needs of the organization to the needs of the families in the aftermath of a disaster? Okay, I would answer that in two ways. Um, first of all, responding to the families in the aftermath of a disaster is not going to impact the facts and circumstances which caused the disaster. Okay, so if there is a situation, and whether it's airplane crash, railroad, or um, bus, that doesn't really make any difference, that uh, has an accident, the events leading up to that accident, okay, are what they are. And the family assistance piece doesn't impact that analysis. And in fact, um, then you go to the next step, which says the family assistance piece then is the, is the right thing to do for people who have been, ha- their lives turned upside down by an event many times not within their control. It's basically within somebody else's control. It's the right thing to do. In some instances, it's mandated that the company do it, such as the aviation industry. Um, Also, I know there are other industries that have mandated emergency response programs, such as the nuclear industry. So you've got those sort of three elements, if you will. It's not going to impact the facts and circumstances uh, that caused the accident or disaster to begin with. It's the right thing to do. Sometimes it's mandated that you do it. And then the appropriate risk manager slash legal department should take steps, make steps, and take steps to ensure that their employees, their vendors, whoever's out assisting people impacted by the disaster know that that's their only job. That's what they're supposed to do is is to be there to help. And that whatever records or documents or information that somehow come into their possession as a result of that assistance is locked away that it's not part of the litigation, it is not subject to any discovery. The only time when I was running the risk management department at American that family assistance records was ever kind of even brought up in the post-accident litigation was when the plaintiff's lawyers were asking for information with respect to what the family assistance teams did. And I will say, Most of them, if not all of them, when they learned our protocols and procedures with respect to family assistance information said, you know, and and they verified it, they did their due diligence, said, fine, we get it, we understand it, it's not part of the litigation. The other final point that I would make on, on the family assistance, and I've written an article on this called The Duty to Respond, you've got the events leading up to the disaster that probably most likely will go into litigation. But then I firmly believe that if the company fails then to respond in an adequate way to an emergency or an accident, you could have a separate cause of action for that failure of that response. And there's, I wrote an article about this a long time ago, and there's actually been some litigation post the article that kind of supports that analysis. And one of the best best example is post-Katrina. There were several lawsuits post-Katrina. Katrina that some of the hospitals, civil lawsuits, not just, and criminal, that some of the hospitals did not adequately prepare for the aftermath of the hurricane and their patients suffered for it. So companies that are dealing with the public 
um, as a part of their business or are exposed to the public as a result of their business um, may want to seriously think about that and that there may be some exposure that if it was reasonably anticipated that this could happen uh, because you're an airline, your plane has a possibility of crashing and you don't have a reasonable response, um, that there may be a separate sort of cause of action there, to put it in kind of legal terms. Krista, thank you for, th for the detailed explanation, particularly on the litigation aspect of uh, how risk management could be involved with family assistance. I'd like to talk more about that in detail when we come back from the break, and we'll continue the conversation on the Black Box next on RNCN. Buckle up. More of the Black Box is next on RNCN. You're tuned in to The Black Box with Ken Jenkins on RNCN. Welcome back to The Black Box. I'm your host, Ken Jenkins. And before the break, Krista, you and I were discussing uh, litigation and things that, that maybe didn't go well in responses, whether it be aviation response or, in this case, I think you also brought up uh, some instances with Hurricane Katrina. With the client base that you have as, as a risk manager and a lawyer, what are some of the things that you advise clients um, to do to have a successful response in the aftermath of a disaster? Well, it's several fold and, and it's usually um, it's many pages, but in a nutshell, I think every, it is incumbent on every business to understand, to sit down and do an analysis of what its exposures are in terms of the worst case scenario of a disaster all the way to um, the least case very manageable and examine the spectrum now you're not going to get everything you're not going to understand you know understand things unforeseeable events happen but you can i think when you draw on all the right departments you can do that analysis fairly well of worst case but maybe least probable to maybe not worst case but really probably could happen to you know, the other end of the spectrum of, well, it, this is remote, but it's also not going to be very damaging to the survivability of my company. Um, so you, you kind of have to do the matrix or the examination of that and, and determine where your risks are and then plan appropriately to respond to those risks. You know, for example, bus, bus driving. You, you, if you drive a bus, is it probable you, you might have a bus accident? I would put that very, you know, yes, very probable. Um, now, it could be a fender bender, and it's no big deal, and it's managed and moved on, or it could be um, a, fi a fatal accident. And if you have a brand that um, is very recognizable, that could cause problems for the brand. And so taking that, man, that goes for any business. I mean, whether it's you know, electrical plant or a pipeline or uh, an oil and gas plant or a ship harbor or whatever it is. What is the, you know, what's your most probable event and what's its severity and do that analysis and then plan accordingly on how you should respond with the understanding that you're not going to plan for every contingency. You're not going to get every contingency. The unforeseen things happen. But you can at least have a roadmap that you understand, you know, how you should respond in the event a risk should occur that is reasonably foreseeable, to use a legal term. So, and, and I, I really appreciate the analysis of the exposures from the worst-case scenario to a manageable one. But one of the things that you mentioned, and, and I think that's pretty basic, but I also know a lot of organizations that don't do that. They don't do their due diligence in that respect. 
But there was something that you said that um, I want to ask you about from uh, on, on a personal level. And you said to the accident or the response that's managed and moved on. And in today's environment, whether there's legislation that says how an organization should respond, as in the case of aviation, you have the Aviation Disaster Family Assistance Act, and, and maybe in nuclear there are guidelines as well as to how they respond. But in organizations where cust- a customer base or an employee base is impacted, how do we counsel organizations to not just manage and move on, but to take care of the human element? Because that's certainly going to be, uh, it could impact their bottom line and their brand. And I think we're seeing that more and more with social media and things of that nature today. How we take care, as an organization, how we take care of the people impacted is, is part of the process where it hasn't been necessarily historically in the past. So h- how do we help companies get there today? Well, first and foremost, I think risk managers have to understand that it's the right thing to do, that helping their employees and people that have been impacted by a disaster is uh, is sort of a moral imperative uh, from my viewpoint, viewpoint, that it is the right thing to do and should be done uh, to the utmost. Obviously, there may be um, financial constraints, but that's the starting base where I come from. It's, it is sort of a moral imperative. However, then the next job that a risk manager can do is communicate to senior management in terms that may be more understandable. I don't mean to, to sort of denigrate senior management, but in addition to the moral, the moral imperative nature of doing the right thing is also communicating how this can how it, how it will benefit the company to do the right thing give them give senior management uh, an understanding of a fr- and a framework of how this will help the company in the long run which is you know, in, in terms of employee productivity if you don't take care of your employees your employee productivity may may suffer terribly because they're impacted by usually the events as well as other people, as well as the, the victims involved. Um, very much so, we saw that at American a lot, uh, that employee productivity suffered. Uh, the brand of the company will suffer, uh, and the stock price may suffer because the brand is suffering. So there are ways to communicate that there are financial reasons to do this, as well as the moral imperative reason. And there have been studies done on it, and you can and analysis is done on the failure of companies to respond to a disaster and the ultimate long-term effect on them because of that failure to respond, which was fairly disastrous. Um, There are lots and lots of case studies of good crisis management and bad crisis management and the ultimate impact it had on on the company and how they responded. I think it was Tylenol, way going way back, I'm showing my age, uh, Tylenol, one of the aspirin companies that got tampered with in the early 80s, I can't remember, but their response was has been used as a textbook as of good crisis management. They pulled the product. They took care of the people that may have had bad health effects because of the tampered product. They were aggressive and proactive in dealing with the problem. And and literally, if you go into those textbooks on crisis management, that that particular crisis is used as a role model for how a company can manage a crisis correctly. They took care of the people, they pulled, they acted responsibly, they pulled the product, um, they cooperated in terms of trying to figure out how the tampering occurred. So you can use those examples and research 
in talking to senior management to demonstrate and support your case that we need to do this not only because it's the right thing to do, but it could also have significant consequences to the survivability of your company. So, and, and I certainly appreciate more than most, I think, about the right thing to do and the moral imperative. Um, and, and so I appreciate the stories and the examples that you provided that illustrate that. You also talked about financial restraints. And when we come back from the break, we'll continue this conversation on the black box. More of the black box coming up. Listening to the Black Box on RNCN. This is the Black Box on the Real News Communications Network. I'm your host, Ken Jenkins, and our guest in studio today is Krista Hinckley with Hinckley Law. Before the break, Krista, we were talking about um, responding to the aftermath of an emergency, whether it be an aviation accident or business, any other kind of business uh, entity accident, if you will, or disaster. And and you really focused in on what's the right thing to do and the moral imperative, but you also talked about financial constraints. And so as we head into our last segment, I want to ask you um, about financial constraints with regards to any kind of cost-benefit analysis that goes into the decision-making in a response. What kind of tips or guidance can you provide those who are in emergency response with regards to how those financial constraints could impact them? Well, most companies do not have endless resources. Everybody has finite resources that they have to deal with and that they have to understand. And maybe cost-benefit isn't isn't the right word because uh, if you have a disaster, th- there's really not going to be a, a, a benefit that you could really talk about, um, I think, from the sort of standard accounting type of viewpoint. But as part of your emergency response planning, and this is called by any number of different names. Enterprise risk management is one uh, term that it's used for it. And and I discussed it earlier in terms of understanding what your most probable exposures are and what the losses are will be from the most probable exposure. You need to have a very thorough understanding of what your resources will be in the event that the most probable loss occurs. What's your insurance? What's your insurance coverage? What's it not going to cover? And most scenarios, Insurance will cover 80 to 90% of your loss. 80% is usually the term that's used. 20% is uncovered. How much of your balance sheet can absorb the 20% that is not covered by insurance? Is there another way to minimize that risk? Taking into a, and a how, what kind of resources do you have to help respond to the disaster once it has occurred should be part of that analysis. Again, that goes back to insurance to a certain extent, but also your own personal resources that you have at the company. What, who can be used to respond to the risk? How can you manage through the risk, uh, keeping your business going, hopefully, as well as responding adequately to the risk with the, the resources do, that you have. Do you need to identify additional resources, the vendors that we talked about to come in and help, and how much is that gonna cost? And is that something insurance is going to cover or not? So that to me is a part of a, of a good risk manager's job, and in their support of the emergency response function is to map out how the dollars are going to flow in the event of a loss. And m- understand that for the company, what the impact would be to a balance sheet if 
a loss happened that was underinsured, not insured, adequately insured. Uh, and, and insurance is a big, big part of this because a lot of these disasters are covered by insurance, whether it's tornadoes or man-made or otherwise. So a good understanding of what your insurance product provides to you in the event of this disaster, I think, is critical. So I'm not trying to harp on insurance, but, you know, that's why people buy do, insurance. You, you have to you understand yeah. the limitations and also the coverages right. um, in, in, in the planning of your response, is, right. what, I, is what I'm hearing you say. Um, you mentioned vendors several times, and I have a question about vendors that I, just, I, I thought of, and, and that is, you know, in aviation, for example, personal effects recovery is something in the aftermath of a disaster, obtaining the, the luggage, um, things that people were wearing, those kinds of items, um, are to be returned to the families in the aftermath of such a disaster. And that's federally legislated. If something is federally legislated, does that make it automatically covered by insurance? Do we have to have something legislated to make it covered? Or are there times where there are things that are the right things to do that aren't legislated that are still covered by insurance? That's two different questions, and I'm going to circle back to the same answer. Just because the government requires a company to do something, and personal effects is a, is a great example, does not necessarily mean that that's covered by insurance. And that's where you have to have a very good understanding of what your insurance policy says and what it doesn't say. Conversely, the same thing is true. Just even if it's not mandated by the federal government, it may very well be covered by your insurance policy. And, and so understand that's the risk manager's job and kind of what we just talked about is understanding what's insured and what isn't insured and what their policy covers and what it doesn't cover and, have, and having the discussion with your insurance carrier uh, with respect to those losses. Personal effects for airlines is uh, a very good example. Um, one of the reasons that went into the Aviation Disaster Family Assistance Act, the legislation with respect to personal effects specifically, was because airlines, not just the one, not just American, but airlines in general did not handle personal effects well. The insurance world for aviations stepped up to the plate with respect to that and have typically insured that process for the airlines in terms of the vendor that's responding and and uh, the process that's going to be involved in the return of the personal effects. Not There, is, there are limits. They're not going to insure everything. There are limits. You have to understand your policy. But that's one example of where there was a problem. It was identified. It was legislated. And the airlines working with their insurance companies have solved for the have solved the problem. Solved is probably too strong a word, but have addressed the problem um, and have addressed it where there is insurance to support what the airlines are trying to do. So what what I'm understanding is whether it's legislated or not. Um, your insurance coverage may take care of those things. It's imperative that you certainly know the nuances of your coverage. Absolutely. And as you're working with, the other thing that I thought of as we were talking about this, and, and you you and I have responded together. So, um, you know, our, our departments were somewhat integrated in making sure that we were all doing what we were supposed to be doing. Um, is it's imperative that in those organizations or airlines, wh whoever the entity is, if you have an emergency response department, that they are connected to risk management and understanding what's covered, what's not, and that all of the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted? Well, the way I would phrase that is, first of all, yes, to answer your question, I don't think it's the emergency response department's uh, responsibility to understand the, the insurance coverage. But what is imperative is that the de departments work together 
that the emergency response team knows that it's something that they need to discuss with the risk manager or whatever the title is, the person responsible for that, for an understanding of whether or not what they're going to do is insured, not insured, et cetera. And at that point, the risk manager should have a discussion with his company saying, we can do X, Y, and Z. This is covered. This isn't, you know, let's make a decision on how we're going to proceed with that particular scenario. But that con- that communication needs to be there and the teamwork needs to be there in, in, in order to make sure emergency response providers don't do something and the insurance company comes back and says, nice thing to do, not covered. So right. And there may be times where it is a nice thing to do, it's not covered, but the organization wants to do it absolutely, anyway. Absolutely. Pro- provided you've looked at that and you understand that you're going to be absorbing that cost. And I know that in our work together, there are times where that happened. Absolutely. Where the airline said, doesn't matter if it's covered, we're going to do it anyway because we think it's the right thing to do. And that, and actually those kind of conversations in, in a lot of ways should be part of the planning process too. You're not going to cover every scenario or every eventual, eventuality, but you can understand the framework. Sure. Well, and you'd mentioned earlier on too that once you have your plan, it's important that you poke holes in it. And, and that's certainly every aspect of the plan, so that I think that even gets back into what's covered and what's not covered. You really have to pick away at the plan. Unfortunately, we had uh, eight fatal accidents in 10 years. We didn't have to poke, poke holes. We learned what those holes were with each response. Krista, thank you very much for being on the show today and providing your insight. And for everyone that has been listening, I hope this episode of The Black Box provided you with valuable information regarding the role of risk management in the aftermath of a disaster. As I've said before, regardless of your role in the response, people want to see the humanity of the organization in the aftermath of a disaster. Your behavior in the aftermath is critical to the success of your response. If you'd like more information on the role of risk management in the aftermath of a tragedy, please email me at theblackbox at LLC. I also invite you to follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Ken Jenkins LLC. For additional information regarding the services of our guest, Krista Hinckley, she may be reached via email at Krista at HinckleyLaw.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-A at Hinckley, H-I-N-C-K-L-E-Y-L-A-W.com. Additionally, you may find more information on Krista Hinckley's law firm at www.hinckleylaw.com. From everyone on the Black Box, thank you for joining us. Until next time, be safe. For more information on the Black Box with Ken Jenkins, visit us online at KenJenkinsLLC.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter.